Are you talking shift? We are. It's time for the We're Talking Shift podcast. Now, now, now. Here to talk shift, Lori Bischoff. We're talking shift. Hello, everyone. I'm Lori Bischoff. Welcome to We're Talking Shift, where my guest du jour and I talk shift because the antidote to feeling stuck begins in our minds with a shift in our thinking. And that shift often means that you got to go rogue. You've got to take some action. At some point, the guests that I interview have gone rogue and made a shift that altered the course of their life. Talking about those radical shifts and how they ultimately changed their lives for the better is what I am super passionate about sharing with you in the hopes that you too will be inspired to go rogue when you need to make some shifts happen in your own life. For me, physical, spiritual, and emotional fitness has been a major focus of mine for over 30 years now. So I love having guests on who share this passion and want to share their journey and what's worked for them with you. So today is part one of my interview with a very special guest. Her name is Jennifer Jimenez. Jennifer is an actress. She's a reality TV celebrity, uh, a supermodel who's graced the covers of about every major fashion magazine that you can conceive of. She's appeared in music videos for people like Tupac Shakur, Prince, Mick Jagger, a host of others. Her films include Blow with Johnny Depp, Vanilla Sky with Tom Cruise and Charlie's Angels, Full Throttle with Cameron Diaz, Drew Barrymore and Lucy Liu, among others. She's appeared as the Sober Living House Manager for the VH1 reality TV series Sober House, which is a spinoff of the Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew show. And uh, I think she appeared there as a rehab technician at the Pasadena Recovery Center. If you're a fan of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, you also saw Jennifer there. I think seasons two through five she was on. Um, She's been a celebrity guest on talk shows like The View, Good Day LA, and The Today Show. I mean, this girl has been everywhere. But it has not all been a fairy tale for Jennifer, you guys. As her career and her fame and her stardom grew, Jennifer found herself victim to a host of serious challenges. She took her first drink at age 12. And that was the beginning of years of struggle with addiction and body dysmorphia and eating disorders. Yeah, it's been a long road for her. So we're going to talk about all of that with her and how she found her way through it and what she's up to now. So let's welcome Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me, Lori. I'm so excited to be doing this. It's an honor and a privilege. Oh, that's so sweet. We've been trying to get this together for a while now. So I am super happy that we made it work today. And and I just I have so much that I want to cover with you. There's there's so much that I think I would just love if you're cool with it to jump in with your your story of being a young teenager. I I read um, that you were first discovered by a photographer on the Santa Monica Pier, which, by the way, I spent a lot of hours on that pier. It's a beautiful place to hang out. So, is that true? And is that kind of where your career really began? 
Yes, that's exactly where my career began. Um, I, um, I guess I'll give you a little bit of a background. Um, I, I was, my family's from Argentina. I'm first generation born in America. And uh, my parents decided to have an American child naming one of the most common names, Jennifer, and raising me back in Argentina. And where I grew up in Buenos Aires, it was all dirt roads, donkeys. And, you know, it was different than where I grew up later on in California. And, uh, you know, one day, um, my mom and I, my little brother, um, we were playing on the, at the San Monica Pier, and uh, Bruce Weber, who's still one of the biggest photographers in, in the world today, um, came up to my mom and I, and uh, I was actually 13 years old, two months shy of turning 14, and he said to my mom and I that um, I had the right look, and he was shooting this thing for this big designer, and that he was a legit photographer, and um, I, you know, what little girl, you know, when they're young, do, doesn't want to be like Miss USA or Miss Universe or, or a model or something. And, uh, he asked if I could show up the next day. My mom was a little hesitant about it. And, uh, and, you know, of course I convinced her, manipulated my way to letting her make me show, allowing me to show up the next day. And when I showed up, uh, my life instantly changed. I went from growing up in dirt roads and donkeys as a young girl in Argentina to becoming a supermodel overnight. And wow. uh, we were actually shooting for Azadina Laya, and um, you know who, who's like a very famous designer um, who recently passed away about a year or two ago. And um, and Bruce, like the minute I was on set with him, you know I had really long hair, and he cut all my hair off. They asked if they could trim my hair, and literally I think they cut off like you know twelve inches or something. And I had like a boy cut. And uh, in front of the camera, he's like, "This is it. You're mine." And uh, you know, again, we didn't know anything, you know, we, we really didn't know anything that we were, I was diving into and I became his girl and I um, shot with him for like three weeks for Azadine um, and Azadine ended up flying out at the end of the photo shoot um, of that camp. It's a collection book we did. And uh, he said, you know, if I would show up with my mom um, and I and go to Paris uh, in a couple months and do his fashion show. And, you know, we said yes. And at that time, there wasn't a lot of girls that were really young that were being discovered. I mean, Stephanie Seymour a few years prior to me and, you know, it was kind of like a big deal. And, uh, and then Bruce wanted me to do a campaign with him and I did another campaign for Italy. And then he was shooting this documentary called let's get lost, a documentary on Chet Baker, um, who's a very famous uh, jazz musician. And, um, and I remember moving in front of that camera and like being able to talk and my voice mattered and being a part of a creative team and and it was just like it was mind-blowing to me and we shot that for a few weeks um i'd say for like three four weeks and then i flew with bruce and my mom and and a whole cast of characters to uh san francisco and i shot calvin klein with him and wow. uh we <laughs> shot that for yeah it was crazy it was like a, a good three four months that i was bruce's girl and uh we shot that and then my mom and i um flew to paris and we landed in paris and there i was um, paparazzis and cameras and we were like what is going on and and uh, I ended up living with Naomi Campbell and her mom and, and Azadine Alaya and my mom and it was just so wild because I'd worn high heels for the shoot but I'd never really walked in heels and I didn't even know what a fashion show really was and um, the night before the the show you know we had uh, there was every supermodel in the show and uh, I was like I don't know how to walk in heels and the girls, you know, Naomi, Linda, Christy, Elle McPherson, um, Tatiana Petit, all these girls were teaching me how to walk in heels the night before. Um, <laughs> wow. So it was so mind-blowing, yeah. And that in that is. time, I was in, 
it, it, it was, I mean, it was really surreal. I remember being there and seeing all these beautiful girls. And then we went out to dinner with all these really famous people. And Duran Duran was there. I don't know why I'm telling you the story, but <laughs> we're sitting there in Paris and I'm like, Duran Duran. And I had them like in my, my walls in my house, you know, it yeah. was, it was, you know, a, girl, a little girl's dream come true. But we right. shot all these, um, I shot all these magazines and, and uh, one of them was the cover of American Elle, and I'm uh, still one of the youngest girls ever on the cover of American Elle. And that September is, September and March are the biggest issues of any fashion magazine. And I was in on probably like 20, 30 magazine covers um, all over the world that September. Um, it was pretty surreal. <laughs> that is surreal. I mean, that is a lot to happen in the course of less than a year for what, so by then you were 14? Yeah. Oh, my God. I can't imagine. That's just, I mean, I'm just p picturing myself, trying to picture myself in that situation <laughs> with um, with all of these, you know, women, these beautiful, gorgeous supermodels, you know, that you would probably seen yourself maybe up to that point on, on you know, the covers of magazine. And, and then there you were with them having them show you how to walk in high heels. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it was, it was crazy. I remember, I remember going back to public high school. I think I had like two weeks. I went to um, high school that year and uh, the rest of that year. And I remember walking in to register for school in September. And um, I'm a girl, I grew up in California's West Covina, it's the San Gabriel Valley. It was a public high school, and I remember walking in and all these people running up to me that I had known, you know, my whole life, well, my, you know, early years, mm -hmm. and showing me my cover. And I was kind of, like, taken aback, you know. I didn't know that the magazine was out, and I didn't know that the covers were, you know, I didn't know yeah. all that stuff. So right. it was kind of, like, very overwhelming, you know, and I was just a little girl trying to fit in public high school, you know, and, and it was, um, I always say I was probably a great model because I'm a great chameleon. People in recovery, I believe, and all types of recovery are great chameleons. It's one of our survival skills, you know, and I was really good at becoming a chameleon. I could become whoever you wanted me to. And I loved being a part of the creative process um, as a yeah. model. And, yeah. um, it, but it was like, you know, I wore many masks. And I remember going to school and trying to fit in like a normal kid in high school and then I'd run home and I'd be in, you know, family dynamics of trauma and all this stuff that was going on. And then I'd be selling sex in this adult entertainment world as a model when I literally didn't even know what that was about. And my body, you know, started developing and I had taken, you know, I'm in recovery. I'm, uh, I'm over 13 years sober. January 15th is my sobriety date of 2006. And um, I just, you know, I didn't, I tried my first drink at 12, but I didn't know about addiction or recovery or, or treatment or anything like that. So the progression of my disease, you know, led me to so many different things. But mm -hmm. as I started developing, you know, cause I was a little girl and I started, I was five, six and I'm five, 10 now. So my body started developing and I started growing and getting taller and getting hips and I'm Latin, you know, I'm curvy. Um, and, uh, and the, the the fact that like modeling it's all I know you know and I'm so grateful for my journey and my my destiny um but I I didn't know what all that entailed um I I definitely have gone through so much um 
in my life and in my recovery as well and in my disease and 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 as a model, you know, and as a girl, like when we're supposed to learn about self-worth and dignity and integrity and things like that, I was, it was all about the outside. You know, I was only as good as my yeah. next job cover campaign. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I was, I was young. And so I, like I was saying earlier, as I started developing, my body started getting curvy and tall and, you know, the measuring tapes kept coming out and, you know, the agents would tell my mom that, you know, to take me to, you know, a steam room and a sauna and, and, you know, take me out of school and make me go to the gym. And, you know, I couldn't get too big at the gym, but I, you know, and, and I, I, I didn't, you know, I, I couldn't eat certain things. So the supermodels taught me how to eat boxes of laxatives and, and, and uh, lettuce and drinking, you know, helped. And I was kind of trying different things at mm-hmm. the time, um, but yeah. nothing really kind of stuck um, for me. But the eating disorders definitely started kicking in. So, which, yeah, clearly, how could they not with all of that, you know, coming at you from all of those angles, and you're still so young, that you're just thinking, okay, this is what I have to do now without really without question about what's right and what's good for you, because you're not old enough to even know that yet. You're just like, okay, this is what I do next. And I, you know, I can understand um, what you said a minute ago about you know, when you're in the modeling industry, <clears throat> it's uh, it really doesn't matter how you feel or what you have to say or what you think. It only matters about how you look. Um, and that's a tricky road when you're a, a child to navigate. You know, it's something that, uh, and I know this myself because uh, I never was at the levels that you were, but I was a child model. And so I grew up from the time I was five doing uh, a lot of, a lot of work throughout my childhood. And you know what? It was a, it was awesome because I learned so many great things about, about working and work ethic and being a professional and actually, you know, what it means to work and then, um, and earn a paycheck. You know, I learned all those things from a really young age, but but being in that industry, the other thing that I learned that I had to unlearn was my voice. I didn't really need to use it for anything. I just needed to show up, take direction and, you know, and look good with that toy or with that little outfit on or, you know, whatever I was told to do. And, um, and so you are, you're, you're too young to understand the pros and the cons of what you're doing. And then as you get older, you know, for you, you're obviously on a, on, on such a massive level on the highest level with it. I'm too, uh, I'm too short. I didn't ever get to that level, no. <laughs> but, uh, cause I'm only like just knocking on the door of five, four, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, you know, neither here nor there, but the point is I, I get, I get a lot of where that initially starts when, um, you just then are a chameleon and you just can adapt to whatever environment you're in, um, because you learn to do it at a really young age. And then, you know, and then moving forward, like for you, you hit some really troubled waters. So you said that you took your mm. your first um, drink at of alcohol around age 12? Mm-hmm. I did. And 
for just to go back a little bit, I want to tell you, you're absolutely beautiful. Um, it doesn't matter Aww. what, how tall we, you are yeah. or, you know, how small or big or whatever it is, like you're absolutely gorgeous. And everyone talks so highly about you. And um, you Aww. have, such, I mean, you, you just hold yourself with such grace. So I just think it's so important for us to embrace that as well, you know. And, yeah. um, you know, with the modeling thing, um, that, you know, my voice, never mattered and you know we all it's very important to find our voices in any time any place we are at you know and and I'm still yet finding my voice um Mm -hmm. I I really actually would love to talk a little bit more about that later on if you'd like um about finding our voice and as being a woman in 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 finding you know say with all the me too's and all this stuff that's going on like you know I, I I'm very independent but I'm also you know I'm also, you know, the stronger we are as women, the more people will label us. And, um, and it's me trying to not label myself um, as right. in a category, you know, and I, I work really hard at that. And again, yeah. I'm still finding my voice. And me um, I mean, and I think that like, we'll always be in that process. And there's, there's a beauty in that, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and at times, like, I, I work with women, you know, in treatment or when I talk to other women or just, you know, on the streets and stuff. And it's like, oh, no, 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 don't say that. Like, or, you know, you saying that is because it's, it's other stuff. Like, you're, you're, it's not stupid to ask this or it's, it, or you are, you do matter or your opinion does matter. Um, and for me, you know, when I wanted to have a creative input, like, I want to be part of that process as a model, they said it didn't matter, and that I was just a hanger, and I was always replaceable, and from the day I started modeling, I mean, I literally have been torn apart. I know every single imperfection there is about me, every angle, everything, you know, and it's like, it's almost like it could be very damaging, and it used to be for me, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, I, I today don't, don't strive to be super skinny or super big or super anything. I try to be super comfortable. Um, yeah. But uh, it's taking a lot, a lot of work. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. It's taking yeah. a lot of work. And this whole aging process, like I wish somebody wrote, gave me a book or a manual guide on the aging process because I remember as little when I was younger, you know, from my mom to everyone going, oh, just wait till you get to my age or just wait till you get, you know, into your 20s or 30s or 40s. And I'm in my 40s now. And it's like, oh, God, you know, um, no one yeah. told me what to wait for. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> right. Right. Well, they always make it sound like, you know, there's something that bad that's going to happen. Oh, you just wait. And then it's like this this sort of voice of doom, like some the tables are going to turn and life will cease to exist as you know it. And it's all uh-huh. downhill from here. You know, it's like every uh-huh. every decade is a mile marker. But I'll tell you what, because I am quite a bit older than you. I can tell you firsthand that it is bullshit. Every single <laughs> decade, every year, every decade that has gone by, I'm like, well, I don't know what all the fuss was about. I feel better. I feel smarter. I feel wiser. I feel stronger. I feel more fierce every year that goes by. So I think it gets better, not, you know, not diminishing. It's, it's empowering for me anyway. That's yeah, been my no. experience. So that's what I like to share. I- as you're saying that, like, I was thinking, like, you know, in my 20s, I seriously didn't know my head from my ass. And there's nothing, I'm not knocking the 20s at all. But right. I, I mean, I was much more insecure than I am right now today. And, totally. um, 
now I'm like, oh, wow, I, I have like a muscle here. And I get very excited about it. Back in the day, I, I wasn't like that, you know. Or, um, and uh, I, I think so, too. Like, it, it's true. Like, at 30, I was like, oh, God, it's 30. It's doomsday. And, you know, again, that goes back to my modeling days. Like, I remember as a model, they would tell me by 18, like, I'm, I'm pretty much close to retirement. At 21, my life was over. I mean, literally, so I always struggled with age, and I would always lie, and then when I got into acting, they're like, oh, don't say you're a, mo- you're a model, and I'm like, how do I not say that? Like, first of all, I'm 5'10", and second of all, people will know, some people may not recognize me from my modeling days, and then, sure. you know, don't say your age, and I'm like, wow, and now I can't hide it because it's on Wikipedia, so, I mean, I just turned 42, <laughs> so I'm embracing it, I'm embracing it right now. Um, it's sometimes I slow down though. In the morning, I feel like I need an oil change every morning in my body. You know, I kind of need to walk it off a little bit, but I think that's the wear and tear. Um, but I love that you said that, you know, and I think it's so, so important first and foremost, as a woman for us to encourage and support each other, um, as that, you know, and like, as women, like we can do this, but also with men, like they go through it too, you know, and just Mm -hmm. as human beings, we should support each other. And I think in this day and time with everything that's going on, you know, um, the only thing I can do, I can't change anything. I can't change, you know, global, global warming or politics or, you know, all the tragedy that's going on in the world, but I can definitely impact it. And I can only do it by love, you know? And and so that's what my main thing is. And you doing that to me really helps me. And I want to thank you for that. Um, Yes, of course. Yeah. I think you're right though. I I think it's got to start from love, which is, you know, starts inside every individual. You can't, you know, when people talk about movements and society and communities and culture, you know, that's all, that's not like one big thing, but it, it is, but it's all made up of individual people. And that's where, it really is. that's where, you know, the foundational, you have to start with the individual. Um, so I, I totally get what you're saying, but I, let's talk a minute about, um, about your journey because, you know, yes, people are 12. hearing wow, you know, right. You started your, your life journey and your troubles and challenges started, um, before you were really even, you know, well into your teen years. And, um, and I think it's important to share that journey and, and there's a lot in there that we want to talk about. So how did, how did you end up going from, you know, this whirlwind, um, modeling career that started, you know, having you globe trotting all over and gracing all of these covers of magazines to finding yourself literally becoming an addict. So I, you know, in Argentina, and I always go back to this part of the story, like I've done a lot of inner work and I'm continuing, I'm always um, doing the inner work. Um, thank God for therapy. I still go and I, I still work. Um, with uh, mentors. I have many mentors, but I do have a sponsor that I work with as well in recovery. But I had to like dig really deep and I had to do like timelines and all this stuff and try to find these like where I was uniquely different. You know, I suffer from that and I suffer from many things like eating disorders and addiction, you know, uh, drugs and alcohol and, and, um, and mental um, illness as well. Um, and um, I, I suffer from depression. I just recently came out about that in the magazine, um, in Recovery Today magazine. I've become a writer on there. And so I've been talking about that as well. But 
when I grew up in Argentina, it was like, I remember everyone, we're very intermeshed, intertwined, family's very important, so we would have late night dinners with like a huge, you know, pretty much the whole neighborhood, and and um, we'd have so much food filled on the table that all the drinks were on the floor, and I just remember everyone, like the more they poured, the longer the parties lasted, and I remember people drinking and having a really good time. I remember dancing with my grandparents, I remember seeing my mom and dad happy, like I just remember everyone happy, and uh, when we came back to California, California, um, when my parents realized my little brother and I would probably have more opportunities out in California, in America, than we would in Argentina, and they sacrificed everything, I started school and I spoke Spanish, so I had to learn English, and, you know, I already felt uniquely different, um, and um, my parents, you know, they started struggling um, with the, their own problems, and God bless them, they did the best they could, um, and I'm, uh, I see them not up or down anymore. I see them as human beings and um, I'm grateful for everything that they've done um, to, to sacrifice for my little brother and I, and I'm grateful. I, I'm blessed to say that and that I was really loved and that I am really loved. Um, but they had, they had their own difficulties. And I remember 12 was just very chaotic for me. Um, 12, I realized my parents admitted to me that they were separated and they were going to go through a divorce and I didn't have a place to have an outlet. Um, you know, and I didn't realize that until a few years back, I'd say like five years ago, how traumatic that really was for me. And that was sure. by doing more work, you know, and, um, and that I kind of, you know, thought I was the only little, I was the only girl in this world, in this universe going through that, you know, and I'd go back to school and act like everything was okay when it really wasn't. And um, because I believe it's, and it's actually a proven fact, it's a gene, it's hereditary. Um, I, um, I, you know, once exposed, the beast was awakened, you know, for me. But at 12 years old, I remember I was making my brother's sandwich in the kitchen. And um, I looked over from the kitchen to the dining room. My parents had a liquor cabinet. And I just remember that moment going, I just want to feel like they did in Argentina, you know, because I equated drinking to happy. And I went and I yeah. got this cup and I poured all these um, different liquor bottles in there. I would liquor in there. And I took my first drink. And till this day, I kid you not when I tell you this. When I took that drink, my perception till, still tells me it felt like this. It went down into my throat and it got into my stomach and it was kind of warm and fuzzy. And all of a sudden it felt like it imploded inside me. And um, I felt like a cross between the Jolly Green Giant, Wonder Woman, and She-Ra. Like I felt like I had arrived that moment, right? My little brother's there and he's like, ooh, I'm telling you. And I was like, shut up. And uh, he bribed me and I gave him all my change and I eventually ran out and a uh, little jerk off went and ratted on me that night. And my dad sh actually showed up that night and uh, my parents put me on restriction for the rest of my life. And um, that lasted maybe 45 minutes. And... Um, you know, there was never any consequences to my actions. There was never, like, no one taught me boundaries or, you know, they didn't know that, you know, we didn't know about disease, you know, addiction, right. like I said. And, um, you know, the progression of my disease has led me to everything and anything else. I didn't become a full-fledged alcoholic overnight. Um, it didn't happen in, you know, uh, a, a year. I mean, it may have taken some time for me, but sometimes exposed, um, it happens overnight for some people. But for me, it took a little, a little bit, you know, and mm -hmm. I know a lot of people talk about drinking and using and saying, oh, God, it's so bad. And it was bad. It ended up being traumatic for me. But at that moment, um, you know, it was a relief. And drugs and alcohol saved me at times. I'm grateful for that at, to the point that it, you know, led me to getting help.
you know, because I couldn't uh-huh. anymore. But what my drug of choice is, is um, cocaine. And when I did try that, um, I got to say, like the first time I did that first line, I was hooked. For me, cocaine gave me a heartbeat like nothing else ever has. But in the end, you know, it ended up bringing my knees and it betrayed me. Sure, sure. So that probably, I'm guessing the cocaine, um, the exposure to that must have maybe come along uh, in in your modeling career as you were a young model. Is that where you were exposed to it? Or uh, was it just yes, two I friends? Was. It okay. was two models um, that I was at. And, um, you know, it was, uh, I was close to turning 18 years old. Uh, and uh, I was at one of the girls' houses and, you know, we're drinking out of these beautiful glass, like crystal glasses of champagne. And, you know, I was acting as if I was really good at acting as if, like I said earlier, but, mm-hmm. um, I, uh, all of a sudden one of the girls brings out this white China plate. They pour all this white powder on there. They cut it all up, roll up this hundred dollar bill and they start snorting away. And they asked me if I wanted some. And I was like, yeah, I haven't done some in a while. Like, you know, it's uh, like, cool. Be cool. I never try. Yeah, it's so cool, right? I never tried cocaine. But like I said, the minute I tried it, I was hooked. And it was on. It was game on. Yeah. Um, so so by the time you got to that point, um, like I just want to back up for one second. You actually then were already vulnerable to all of these influences because of what you, you know, the story you just told with being young and, you know, what you viewed growing up as far as the, you know, drinking and your association with that, you had, you had already tried alcohol when you were 12. So by the time, and then you're thrust into this world. Um, so you were kind of already really vulnerable and susceptible to all of the, all of the new influences, you, you know, so when cocaine came along, it was just, you were ripe and ready to, to become an addict for it. Yeah. I mean, I really was. And something would have eventually got me down. Yeah. I mean, they would have taken me down. I say it's cocaine, but like the first thing I did was try a drink, you know, I'm addicted to addiction. I suffer from the isms of alcoholism and, um, I have to keep that in check every single day. Like, am I, am I eating right? Am I eating too much? Am I not eating enough? Am I, you know, shopping? Am I not shopping? Am I, you know, acting out? Like, am I getting angry with the love of my life? Am I taking it out on him? Am I taking it out on myself? And, you know, I mean, I'm on literally constantly always trying to figure out, you know, like a daily reprieve, you know, like, what am I doing? Like, am I, mm-hmm. do I have this in check? But one of the things, like, kind of what you were talking about as a young, you know, when you were modeling as a young girl, um, I didn't have any coping mechanisms. Like, no one gave me those. I had survival mechanisms, and I had responsibilities. I became the provider of my family, and, you know, I, you know, was paying mortgages for my mom and bailing my dad out of jail and putting my brother through college and, you know, doing all that. So with that being said, you know, the, the modeling you know, it, it gave me paychecks to do that, but it also gave me, I had to sacrifice a lot, you know? Um, and, um, with that, uh, I really believe that, you know, if you don't have coping skills mechanisms or you lose them along the way and you come into, you know, survival mechanisms, there's, there's a lot of trauma behind that, you know? And again, I didn't have a place where my voice mattered or I was able really to talk about everything, you know, that was happening. And I was, Sometimes, you know, my mom couldn't travel with me. Um, I'd gone away um, out of state or country 33 times by the time I got my diploma. I graduated high school. And that's a lot, you know. And there were times my mom had to stay in L.A. for my brother. 
because of his schooling and stuff. And the agents would promise my mom the world that I'd be looked after the minute I landed, I'd be picked up and I'd live with the head agent or, you know, and I'd land in certain countries and I was all on my own. And at times I saw and experienced a lot of dark things and I was too afraid to come home and tell my family because they knew they'd immediately remove me. And then my head would say, well, then who would take care of us? Because again, um, I felt very responsible for my family. And what I have recently learned in the last few years is that, you know, um, if you come from a traumatic family or a chaotic family and you'd step in as a parent role or as a person that's in charge or responsible, you know, that um, we tend to, to, to feel very responsible. And um, I know that, like, even when I go to therapy now, like, sometimes I've said to my therapist, I actually said this last year, I said, you know, we were talking about some stuff that was going on, and, and uh, it went back to childhood. And, you know, I said, I could have done better for my mom, my brother. And, and he, at the end of this, you know, hour uh, session I had, he said, well, how do you feel? And I said, I feel like I failed them, my family. And he just looked at me and he said, of course you did. You were a child. You were never supposed to be in that role. And with that being said, you know, um, there's a lot of healing that can come from that, you know, because that wasn't supposed to be my role. That was something I put upon myself, you know, right. and um, as children, we don't really necessarily know um, how to not walk into that role because we want to care for the ones that love us. Right. Um, and in that, and it's, it's important to be able to relate to that, you know, and I, there's a moment in everyone's life that feels that, and, um, that makes us human. And mm -hmm. what I have learned from that is that, that, I, that was my past and I'm here right here right now. And I'm able to embrace myself with the strength and the power that, you know, I really have. And I say that to, to people listening that you too have that. You know, I hope that they can embrace themselves with the strength that they have because we've been able to overcome it. Yeah, yes. And that's a wonderful, that's a wonderful thing to say to people. And hopefully, um, you know, people listening will, will grab onto that and know that, you know, it is maybe hopeless as things may have seemed. Um, it's not, it's not. If you just um, allow yourself to believe that there's another way, there's another opportunity that things can get better for you. And yeah, you are, no, you know, a walking representative of that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You know, um, when I got sober this time around, and I'm one of those that was, you know, I, I, we can get into that part of the story. But when I got sober, um, I remember, I mean, I turned people blue in the face uh, for the first year or two. I was like, oh, I want to use, I want to die, I want to use, I want to die, you know, and and I didn't believe. And I remember there's a group of people that would say, kid, just believe that we believe. And till this day, once in a great while, I'll call them and I'll say, just tell me you believe. Like, like I have to believe that you believe, you know, because I'm still really young in recovery. I mean, 13 years is, an, is a great accomplishment, over 13 years, but it's just a lot of days, you know, a lot of yesterdays put together. You know, mm -hmm. today's a new day for me. It's a new day. I've never been sober on this date, and I've never been sober this long. So for me, like, it's, it's very overwhelming still. You know? Sure. Yeah. So you were, um, what, late 20s, early 30s when you um, got sober, when you first started? This last time I was tw uh, 20, uh, 28 or 20, oh yeah, 28 
Okay. Twenty. So, I was going to turn twenty nine that year. Okay. So, what was your um, realization? What was the wall that you hit, or what was your, you know, turning point? Your going rogue story that made you go, "I have to stop this. I have to do something different." Well, um, I, I, it's okay. So that's a good question. Um, I, I feel like there's been moments in my life that I have a few going rogue moments, but mm-hmm. this last time around, um, you know, I was, I, I had switched careers. I, I got into acting and my first movie is a movie called blow. Um, it's my breakout role besides, um, the Chet Baker movie. Um, but I got a lot of recognition for that. And then I did the Little sky and sweetest thing and Corky Romano. And the thing was, I never, I wasn't very outspoken. I wasn't outspoken at all about my recovery or my addiction. And, um, yet again, I was at the top of my game and, uh, I was, um, you know, I was back in Vogue, cover of Details, Allure, all this stuff, you know, the new It Girl in Hollywood and all these movies. And, you know, I just couldn't stay sober. And um, I had a little bit of time at that point. I gotten sober yet again. And uh, I probably had about a year and a half, two years sober. And uh, I relapsed. And um, I, I know my best friend, Brandy Glanville, who was on The Housewives, her and my mom came to me and said that I needed to go to treatment. And, um, at that point, um, in that 11 months that I had relapsed, um, my world got really dark, really quick. I ended up in my shoe box and my shoe closet. I had, um, disconnected my jaw in a gacked out moment. My nose would just bleed profusely. And they came to me with my jaw disconnected, nose bleeding, you know, and, and just like a wreck. And, uh, they said I needed to go to treatment. I literally looked at them and I said, treatments for fucking losers you know, mm. and excuse my language. Mm. And uh, meanwhile, I look like this and they were like, we can't watch you die like this. Um, you got to give yourself a shot. And um, I don't know if anyone's ever had people come to them and said they needed some help of any kind. Well, that day didn't go very well. Sometimes they don't go very well. And yeah. uh, I lost it. And uh, I went on a two week run and then I just, in my head, I could hear them, you know, and, uh, and I went fine. I'll go to treatment. I'll go for five days. It was under my terms. I needed to sleep and eat anyways. And I was going to have those two women shut up, you know, in my head. That's Mm -hmm. how I thought it. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I checked into treatment. I went to this place called Los Encinas, um, in, uh, July 12th, 2005. And, uh, I was going for five days and I ended up staying from July 12th until April 30th of July 12th of 05 to April 30th of 2006. I did relapse in treatment um, it was quite overwhelming um, for me. And, uh, and you know, when I checked back in on January 15th, that was the day that um, I, 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 there was a couple days later, I actually surrendered. But I, you know, when I checked in, my sobriety date is January 15th. And uh, I went into the psych ward because I thought I was buying an eight ball of Coke um, a day. My dealer had me hooked on heroin, speed, horse tranquilizer, rat poison, name it, it was in there. And um, they had to detox me in the psych ward in order to detox off of the narcotics with, I mean, off of the opiates with narcotics. And um, I AMA'd 10 weeks prior. So I just looked at them and I said, whatever. And when I went into that psych ward that day, I just remember the double doors slamming shut and all the from the locks. And, um, there's a line friends and family couldn't cross. And, and I saw this one guy and he was in a chair and his eyes were rolling back and he was drooling. And, 
this guy was screaming and it was this hallway and it felt like forever, but, um, it felt like the longest hallway ever, but it was probably not, I don't remember fully, but, um, he was being tackled by two techs cause he was trying to run down the corridor naked. God bless him. <laughs> and, uh, I just went, what happened to me? You know, how did I, me of all people get here? Right. Yeah. And, um, and I just thought like, oh my God, like, I mean, I literally felt like dead woman walking and my room was the last room on the left in, uh, at the end of the hallway. And, uh, the tech walked me and I, they knew me cause I'd been there from July 12th and now it's January 15th. And, um, I, he, I sat on the bed and he said, you know, we're, I got to go get re- the rest of the assessment paper and, and the med sheet. And I said, I need to go to the restroom anyways. And, uh, when uh, I went to the restroom, you know, in psych wards, they take away shoelaces, um, plastic, any sharp object, you can hurt yourself or anyone else away from you. And um, when um, I got up from going to the restroom, I realized they forgot the belt. And uh, just like that, I started looking up. There was no door connecting to the bathroom to the bedroom. And so I started seeing all these objects on the ceiling. I got on top of one of the beds. I put my belt through one of the objects. I secured it. And then I put my neck through there. And um, the last thing I remember, my feet were dangling. You know, I hung myself and uh, everything went black. And when I came to, uh, I was in a five-point strap. There was a nurse um, sitting on my side singing Hush Little Baby and her name was Nurse Bell, I remember. Um, and uh, I guess I was screaming in that time at some point. Um, but because of the fixation, I had a lot of complications. Um, I couldn't speak. It took me three months to form sentences again. My brain worked perfectly. Um, I shook profusely my hands and my legs. Um, that took nine months to dwindle down. Um, I would get up and I'd Think, say to myself and from my head, you know, my brain, I'd say right foot move and I would fall. I was in a wheelchair from a wheelchair. I went to a walker, a walker. I went to a cane and then I freely learned to walk. That took about five months or so. Um, I had no control of my bodily functions. I peed and pooed myself. Um, so they put me into pens. I like to call them diapers. I um, would throw up on myself from detoxing profusely. So I was covered in pee and poo and it was just horrible. And, uh, I, my brain worked perfectly, you know, and nothing connected. And I remember it was about two or three days later, I was on in the wheelchair by a window and I was holding onto the bars and there was a wind, I could crack it open like a quarter of an inch and people were going to groups or meetings and stuff. And somebody was telling a joke and I could hear everyone laughing. I could smell their smoke, hear this chatter and feel this feeling that I literally couldn't understand. And, um, I said in my head to God, I said, God, is it humanly possible for a girl like me to ever feel what they're feeling? And if so, I'll go to any length. And um, I kid you not, that woman, when I talk about it, that girl in that wheelchair that day still resides inside of me. You know, mm. um, it's, uh, mm. that was my I probably going rogue, hopeless, like somehow something needs to change moment. And um and then there was a few more throughout the years of my recovery. Yeah. Oh, girl, I just, I can't, I can't even pretend to try to imagine um, what, what that hell was like. I, yeah. yeah, I just, I don't even have words. And to, to feel like such a prisoner in your body. I mean, like you said a couple of times, your brain was, was working, fully functioning, but it's like it was almost disconnected from your body. It's like your body just totally, completely malfunctioned on every level. And yeah. that must have been 
the most, I don't know, bizarre, horrible, crazy, uh, unimaginable thing to, to be stuck in that position. And it must have seemed like an eternity. It did. It did. I, I, I've never had anyone say that before <laughs> to me. It, it did. It felt like I was, like, as you're saying that, it felt like I was in a glass box, you know, and I was just like, you guys, get me out of here, you know, and I literally stuttered. It would take me about a minute and a half to say, like, am I going to be like this forever? And the doctors would look at me deadpan and say, maybe, you know, and I was like, oh, my God, this is the hell that I created, you know, and when I look back now, it's the hell that my disease created. Right. You know, right. and that's how powerful it is. Um, I, um, I think I, there is a, I think from that moment on, like I, I wanted to, I wanted people to, there was something in me that, wow, I've never said this before. I don't even know why it's come out, but there's, there's something in me that wanted to prove everyone that that's what I felt like. That's who I was. And I didn't matter in some way. If I really dig deep inside of it, I have never said that out loud, you know, mm -hmm. like this monster, this person that was like, you know, couldn't, you know, just mm -hmm. disheveled in every way possible. Hmm. That's wow. That's pretty deep. Insight. Me right now, thank you for that realization. <laughs> that's all you girl. That's all you. That's just so fascinating. So, so do you think that um, your going rogue shifts, one of them, all of them, some of them, do you think part of that transitioning for you, that transformation began when you actually decided to lean into God to, you know, to a, to a spiritual resource and you asked for help? I, I think so, because when I relapsed in treatment, um, I remember going to try, I was buying all this, these, this amount of drugs and, and uh, cocaine, I thought, like I said, and uh, I was thinking about groups and I was thinking about Dr. Drew. He had penned to be one of my doctors and I was thinking about his dumb little smirk he does, which I actually love now, but back then it was like, <laughs> oh, and I was thinking about one of the counselors was Bob Forrest, who was on celebrity rehab with me. And uh, I was thinking about his like hats and his shade of red hair he had and what shade it was. And I was thinking about like the people there and if they're still there. And, you know, like I, there was a part of me that wanted to be part of the process, you know, and but wanted to be part of, but yet couldn't feel that and wouldn't allow myself to completely surrender. And when I had that moment, that gift of desperation, um, I realized it was done and that I needed the help. I needed, when I went back into treatment that day, like I knew I couldn't do it alone. So I, I, I remember that, that I remember as you asked me this question. Um, uh, and uh, I, I remember I couldn't do it alone and that they could do it for me, you know, and I think treatment is incredible for people who need it. I don't believe everyone needs it. I do believe some people uh, do, a lot of people these days um, actually need it. I needed that structure. I needed that care. I needed people to tell me what to do, how to do it, when to do it, how to feel, when to feel, to define those things, you know, and, and I always say that, like, when the going gets tough for me, I go back to that structure. When the going gets great for me, I go right back to that structure. I try to keep it even keel today. Yeah. Um, and th that kind of, that, that helped me a lot, you know. 
because instead of saying, I feel like shit, I feel bad, I feel this, I feel that, you know, like the same things over and over again, I really got to discover things, you know, and it took quite some time for me to discover it. You know, right. there's been a few more going rogue moments for me. Um, you know, and I started believing, like I said, that other people believed. I just let them run the show, you know, and, and in that time, um, when I first originally went to treatment, I didn't know I was pregnant and, uh, I had to go through a forced miscarriage in treatment. And, uh, a few months later, uh, it was the end of October. I wasn't feeling good that whole process, like those, all those months from July, uh, from when that happened, um, until it was August that it happened that I found out every, or like the end, yeah, the end of July or so. And the end of October, um, I wasn't feeling good. And I kept asking, let me go to my doctor in LA. And I went and um, my doctor told me I was still carrying that baby that was now dead inside me. And my HCG levels were really high. And I was like, I had another 10 days to live or so. And he had to do an emergency DNC that day. And that day he decided to do it with no sedation. And um, I saw and felt everything. But now I had a little bit of time under my belt, like a couple, you know, I had some, you know, a, a good from July to the end of October. I started feeling feelings. And I remember when I laid on that table, I felt for the, it felt like the first time I felt that cold table. I felt what I was laying on. I felt what was going on. I felt about my poor mother, how I made her suffer and my dad and my poor brother and my careers and how I lost them all and all everything, my friends and just, you know, all this stuff. And it was just too overwhelming, you know, and, and, um, and I saw what it, it was happening to me at the same time. And I went back to treatment. I told them what had happened and it was just too real. Um, and, uh, and with that, you know, I, I relapsed a couple of days later and, um, and then when I came back, I just went, Oh God, like, I just need them to guide me. And, uh, and when I got out of treatment, um, I did that. I said I was going to do the aftercare plan and all that. And I, I needed to get my life back, you know, and I went back to LA and I had no game left in me. Like all I did was contemplate suicide and using every single day. And finally, at nine months sober, my sponsor said, you know, I can't enable you into a grave, but I can help you if you're willing to go to any length, the program way. And I asked her what that looked like. And she said, I need to go back into sober living and um, put my life in storage. Um, I had made millions. I blew every dollar. I only had enough for about a month and a half of sober living. I looked at her and I was like, now what? She goes, you're going to dig deep, um, get ready to dig deep. We're going to get pen and paper and we're going to work really hard. And um, she she said, you're going to go to meetings. You're going to show up 15 minutes early. You're going to go out and fellowship afterwards. You're going to take a bunch of commitments. You're going to go into women's groups and you're going to get sober where I got sober in Crenshaw 96 in the hood. And, uh, mm. I got to tell you, those people in those meetings saved my life. Um, uh, I ended up, uh, going uh, and staying in people's houses on their couches in their spare bedrooms in their um, guest homes at my mom's house. Um, and I pretty much went homeless and that was like yet another rogue moment. And, um, and it, it, it like, it was so now that I look back, it was so, it was like a, a burden was lifted, you know? Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, I was still like a little, you know, self-righteous and a little bit of an ass. And I'd go to those meetings and I would always like raise my hand and, you know, in those, in the hood meetings, it'd be like, Oh, look what the pretty little princess has to say, what it was like, what it was like. And they'd be like, sit down, shut the F up and, you know, listen. And, and they're like, all you know was, was what it was like. Like 
just follow us, just follow us. And, you know, mm. I'd be like, whatever, toothless people meeting, you know, and I'm they were just, <laughs> like, I, it was crazy. Yeah. You know, and and uh, I got to tell that, you, those people. Yeah, I just, I wanted to just like make this, um, I had this thought before I lose it that, you know, this whole thing that you had to do of surrendering, surrendering to other people helping you, surrendering to structure, surrendering to guidance, you had to completely, um, you, you had to completely do something that you were not groomed to do when you were young. It was the opposite. You said you, you had no real structure. You had no real guidance. In fact, it was the opposite. You were the one that had to manage everything you know, around your life and your family's life because you thought that was survival and you had to go out and be the one to, to create that and to make, you know, the, have the resources, generate the resources to keep everybody alive and moving forward. So it seems like you had, that was something that you actually had to unlearn to let go of those responsibilities and that burden and give it up to someone else that knew better for you now at this point in your life. Or when you were there. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And that's exactly what I say. Those, those, as I call them toothless people, they saved my life. They rebirthed mm. me. They really did. And like, I'm eternally grateful for them. I get so emotional when I talk about it. Mm. Um, you know, they, they, they brought me up and they, you know, and some of those people I still talk to, um, I, and I'll, they're my towers, you know, they, they literally restructured me. And, um, when I had no structure, you're absolutely right with what you're saying. And it was like, it was a reversal for me. It was like a reverse. And like, I had to learn all the things I didn't know. And I had to change all the things I knew to not know them. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, yeah. and, um, it was, it's been an interesting journey on that level, you know, and there were things like I didn't, that weren't necessarily in the program that I had to do. So, I have incorporated many different things. Um, and like my sponsor wouldn't let me watch like tabloid TV or look at magazines or look in the mirror too long. You know, I'd get out of the shower and have 15 minutes to shower and change, you know, and kind of, you know, if I did anything, I had to go to meetings like with my face or anything, but I had to go to meetings with my hair pulled back in a bun or a ponytail. I had to wear t-shirts. Um, I had to wear jeans or leggings and flats. I always had to feel grounded. I couldn't be on my phone when I was in meetings. I couldn't do any of that stuff. And, you know, that day when my sponsor said she couldn't enable me anymore, if I want to do the program way, she said, you know, you'll always, um, if it, she asked me, she said, is it humanly possible? possible for you to believe in something bigger than yourself and I was like I guess she's like good and uh, she goes you, you'll never lack and I got to tell you Lori there has not been one day that I've ever lacked ever in my sobriety I may have not gotten what I wanted but I've never lacked I've always had a roof over my head a pillow to sleep on and food on my plate you know and uh, I couldn't date um, I couldn't be in a relationship for a year that lasted about 11 months and 13 days not that I was counting <laughs> but uh, I uh, couldn't um, hug men. That was six months. It really lasted eight and a half. I was at a meeting one time. There's this old timer. He's in a wheelchair, and he came, said, "Come over here, kid. Hug me." And I hugged him. And my sponsor happened to have been there, and she gave me that look, you know, that some women sometimes can give you, like, "What the hell are you doing?" And mm -hmm. I looked at her. I'm like, "What's the matter, sponsor?" And she's like, "You hugged a man." I was like. I know, but he's 90 and dying. And she's like, but your problem is you hug him like you want to fuck him. Like you oh. use your, sens your sensuality instead of your sexuality instead of your, your brains, your skills. Let me teach you how to use your words, your mouth, you know, your intelligence, your, you know, it, let me teach you how to use this. And 
I today can hug men and not use my sexuality or my sensuality. You know, I don't need that for validation anymore. Um, I don't think that just by a certain way, like my looks matter, you know, I mean, my looks for me, like I want to feel the best I am, but you know, it's not the most important, you know, I want to have that, that foundation. Um, By not um, looking in the mirror and digging really deep and uncovering, discovering and discarding, it got really uncomfortable. It got really, really uncomfortable. So much so that because of the pregnancy and then the, the, the miscarriage and then the, the DNC afterwards, my hormones shutting down and all the dig, digging deep within my soul to find my soul, um, I, um, I gained a lot, a lot of weight. I, I gained over 120 pounds. I've lost over 140, you know, so I went from obese, from anorexia to obesity, you know, and I literally was pulling a size 18. Um, I was 267 pounds at my heaviest. And I just remember it was at year two, two and a half, two, they were doing a, a birthday dinner for me that day for my sobriety birthday. And, um, I got all these calls from all these old timers and my sponsees at the time, and they were all congratulating me. And I was like, I think I'm going to go. Like, everything always shrunk. I don't know why, but in my head, like, all my clothes shrunk. It was just that I was getting bigger. And my scale was always broken. And um, I went, I was like, I'm going to go buy a new outfit. And uh, that day I went, and um, I went to the Victoria's Secrets place and uh, this lady, this hot Victoria's Secret lady that worked there, I was like, right. excuse me, could you measure me? I think I gained a little bit of weight. And she just looked at me with disgust and was like, uh, we don't make your size. Try Lane Bryant. And I just looked Whoa. at her like, oh, what? You know, and like, I remember I started crying when I left there and I went home and I weighed myself and that was 267. And I looked in the mirror and I went, oh, my God. And I was, like, touching my body, going, like, what happened as I'm looking in the mirror? Like, I was in this what I would call a fat suit, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I couldn't believe that that was really me. But then I started hearing the voices, but they were the good voices now, like, of everyone who had called me that day, like, congratulating me and loving me. And, you know, and, like, I started crying first, like, whammy. And then I heard all that. And I just went, oh, my God. And at that moment, I realized that I was loved for who I was. Yeah. Yeah. Not for what I look like, you know? Right. um, What a good thing that you had to go through that. Otherwise you may not have had that realization that your, your ability to be worthy and valuable and loved had nothing to do with looking model perfect. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I remember in that moment after I said like, Oh my God, you know why me? And I just went, thank you. And I looked at that weight because I realized that that weight protected me from everyone and most of all from myself, Mm. you know? And, um, it was that layer, you know, that I needed. It was my armor and, uh, wow, I'm so emotional over it. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a place for you. It's a, uh, it's an emotional soft spot and, you know, we need to have those. That's uh, it's good. It's meaningful. It's meaningful. Yeah. And, yeah. And it really is. All, the, yeah. The journey, you know, the two and a half years, like the two, two and a half year mark was my other rogue moment, you know, and, and five year mark, I had it too. And at seven and then last year I had it. So like I've had these 
crazy, like not crazy, but these like huge, like rogue moments as I call them. They really are. Um, mm -hmm. So there's been a few of them, you know, and, and, and yeah. yet I think it's because we're always evolving. Really. It's some, I always, I always want to be mo like a, a moving forward motion. You know, yeah. life is always going that way. I can choose to either stay stuck or move forward. And I've chosen that destiny of moving forward. So um, two was yeah. a, a big year for me. Um, and, uh, and I called Hollywood a chapter. I moved out of LA. I moved, I thought it was Egypt. It was just an hour outside of LA. Um, <laughs> and, uh, I was unemployable because my sponsor said, you know, that day at nine months over, I'm going to go back to that nine months. You know, she said, you know, I, if you can believe in something bigger than you, you won't lack. And I never did. And I was unemployable. And at two and a half, they said it was time for me to get a job. And I was like, what? And this is that aha moment, I think, at that, you know, from the two-year mar mark, from the weight to the that. And I was like, um, well, I really like being involved in recovery. And my sponsor was like, you got to get a job. I'm like, where am I going to go? And she's like, she was like, I need you to apply somewhere. I don't care. And at the top of her head, she said, Starbucks and Target. And I looked at her and I said, what the fuck am I going to give them? A headshot and a resume? Like, I have no job skills. Like, I had none, you know, whatsoever. And, um, and she said, well, faith without works is dead. Why don't you write down who you want to be and what you want to do? Oh, and dream big. And I looked at her and I was like, I feel the humility, yo. Like, you don't need to keep rubbing it down our face. She goes, <laughs> do the work. And uh, I wanted to always, like, there was a part of me that wanted to prove the program wrong. And I was like, fine, I will. And I shot for the moon because she told me to dream big. And I wrote down 85 things. And I wrote down things like, I want to make a difference. I want to stand for something. I want to be an advocate. I want to be back on TV. I want to be in magazines. I want to be a provider for my family. I want to be a businesswoman. And out of those 85 things, um, I, um, I want a huge platform, like all that stuff. And I have those two sheets in my night nightstand. And every year on January 15th, I look at them. And now out of those 85, 45 will come true. And uh, what I'm with that, all I say is be careful what you ask for because it will come, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and, uh, it's true, especially when you write it down. Okay, well, that is all we have time for today with Jennifer. Wow, what a story so far. Oh, my God. She's amazing. But there is just a lot more wisdom coming from her. And so make sure that you check back next week for part two of my interview with Jennifer Jimenez. I hope that you love what you heard today and uh, please give me a rating and leave your comments. I'd love to hear them. Uh, subscribe if you haven't already. And if you are trying to make some shift happen in your life and you would like to find out what coaching is all about with me, you can find me on all of the social media platforms or go to the website, lauriebischoff.com or we're talking shift.com. Thank you for listening, everybody. And I look forward to hanging out with you next week. Until then, stay feisty, my friends, and go make some shift happen. It goes for you too, Gary V. The preceding podcast was a TJ DeSantis production. Comments, questions, and inquiries can be directed to desantisprod at gmail.com.